this is really interesting, but he has one brother that is the person that actually buys shark fins. So he really doesn't like me and he's tried to get Odie and the rest of the brothers to never work with me. And they've basically been like, no, we're going to work with her. So I feel like it's like sometimes an episode of Jerry Springer, Indonesian style. And I've just come in and like started all this family drama, but it's pretty cool. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 95th episode of Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where we're just trying to make the world 10% nicer, and holy mother of God, does the world need it. We've got war raging, uh, greed, wild income and resource inequalities, newfound hate against women and transhumans, thanks Oklahoma, habitat destruction all over the globe. Elon Zuckerberg, yeah, we absolutely need to be a lot nicer and smarter ASAP. Seriously, (laughs) we've had more conversations in one week about a mediocre actor's slap than we've ever had about all the species we've driven to extinction. Humans just don't understand. Sorry, sorry for the rant. I apologize. No no more of that. Uh, While I may not have high hopes that we collectively care enough to save the best of what's left of our insanely beautiful home, I do have some hope. Hope that gets further shredded when I hear people say things like, now isn't the time for a progressive party that cares about saving the world more than it does sucking every last drop of vitality out of it and converting it into shit nobody needs, but over which everyone obsesses. <laughs> now they want you to vote. That's the, that's the trick, you gotta vote. Vote for the lesser of two evils. You gotta vote evil. Don't vote for a better future. No, not now. Now isn't the time for that. Now isn't the time to fix things. Now is the time to vote for a terrible human who will fuck you over as you grab your ankles, fervently believing that the other guy would have fucked you twice as hard. And you're supposed to be grateful for that softer ass rape. Which brings me to this week's guest. Super nice Madison Stewart, who years ago was nicknamed by the press Shark Girl, but now she's a grown ass woman and thinks, yeah, maybe I'm not down with being called a girl, which is fair, right? I think so. Madison has devoted herself to bringing awareness to the plight of man's best underwater friends, sharks. Uh, Through the documentaries she's made and her efforts to transform shark fishing boats into tourist adventure boats, she's been one of the world's fiercest advocates to treat our friends with a lot more respect and kindness, you know? Like, stop eating them for starters. Seriously, if you're listening to this, you know that almost every fish in the ocean is threatened with extinction, and you know that sharks are harvested by the millions, 100 million every year. I mean, now you really know. And you know that there's no point in eating them. Like, all you're doing is putting toxic mercury in your body that's going to give you breast cancer and or make your dick stop working. Truth. So spit it out. Grab some broccoli instead, okay? Okay, we're going to get into all of this and what Madison is doing with her Project Hue in just a minute. But first, we finally have sponsors. Really excited to have Apple, Apple, big ol' Apple on board as our first major sponsor at Nice Work. And even more excited that they've recently unveiled an all-new iPhone 13. I mean, it's not all new, but the color is new. Yeah, you can get one in green now. Before you, know, before you put a case on it, you know. But until you put that case on it, your friends and family will be green with envy over the fact that you bought the same phone as everyone else you know. Stepford Green is limited edition, so throw away whatever phone you're using to listen to this podcast and get it now. There's thousands of starving workers in China who inhale the toxic fumes generated from the production of this phone who will thank you, as will the women executives who are treated terribly but whose NDAs preclude them from telling their horror stories without getting sued after they quit by Apple. We're also proud to have Nike as a sponsor, whose public fellatio of China has fostered conditions of brutal human slavery. Thanks for all your support, Nike. Okay, ready for this? Let's do this. Turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with friend of the ocean and its gorgeous creatures, Madison Stewart. Madison, Madison Stewart, good morning, or... Good morning. Afternoon, evening. Yeah, it's evening afternoon here. Afternoon, yeah. Where, where's here? Where are you? I'm in Florida. 
Really glad to have you on today to talk about your favorite thing, you. <laughs> you and oh. sharks and the oceans, <laughs> all kinds that's of things. Kind of, that's kind of a boring topic if we're just <laughs> going to talk about me, but we'll chuck some sharks in there to make it interesting. Okay, okay, cool. That, that'll work then. That'll work for me. So you're kind of a superhero. I mean, you have a superhero name, you know, shark girl, <laughs> or shark woman, whatever, you know, as your journey progresses. Either way, if you have a superhero name, that means you need... We need to have like your origin story right off the bat, right? That's the best part of all these superhero movies is the origin stories. So, and you've told yours a thousand times. So it's going to be a thousand and one. From what I know, you've kind of always been obsessed with the ocean and with water. Yeah. So it all started when I was bitten by a radioactive shark and yes. got my superpowers. That's and fantastic. And then... <laughs> Do Sorry. webs work underwater? <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be so cool. So I, the my, my story actually like a little bit of a depressing one. So I like grew up diving and swimming with sharks. I had eccentric parents, grew up on a sailboat off the coast of Australia, was always in the water, always in the ocean. So my parents love the ocean. I was basically spending more time with sharks than with other kids when I was young. So that was kind of like my entry. But when I was about 14 years old, I started to notice that sharks that I grew up diving with were disappearing in numbers in places like the Great Bay Reef Marine Park. So that's kind of when it all turned into conservation for me. And it started off slowly, but it, it just became a process of trying to do something about all the issues that I was facing and, and seeing these changes occurring in my space, in my lifetime. So yeah, it, it started off obviously being so lucky, enjoying the oceans, loving the oceans. This is awesome. I get to dive with sharks and then kind of turned into, I need to do something about this because they're disappearing. That was, that was a moment for you. I think I read you sort of had a moment on a dive where there was sort of a lonely shark. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a night dive where there's usually lots and lots of sharks and only one showed up. Um, and I was just like, it was the first time I'd ever had an underwater camera with me. So I jumped mm -hmm. in the water, super excited. I was like, I'm going to get footage of this thing that I've experienced multiple times in the past. And then there was just nothing. It was like this, this moment of being like, oh my gosh. And, you know, there's a lot of factors that can kind of dictate when there's going to be sharks in the water and not. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is this is a regular dive that people do quite often. This is a place where the sharks aren't migratory. They live there. So their absence was actually very concerning. And that is when it all started for me. So I was only 14 years old at the time. So I guess I've been doing this kind of conservation stuff for a long time. So you're 14 on a night dive, which is amazing, by the way, because you were, you were, I don't know, is it Patty in Australia too, right? Patty certified? Yep. Yeah. So yeah. it's Patty. That's global. Well. Yeah. When you were 12 years old, you're Patty certified. And by the way, folks, even if you're living somewhere landlocked, like, Kansas City or something, it's not a terrible idea to go get your paddy, your diving certification. You can get it like in your local pool or, or maybe yeah, you have totally. a, a lake or something like that. But it, it, yeah. if you live in a town with more than a couple thousand people, odds are pretty good. There's somebody near you that does paddy certification. I highly recommend it, not just because it's something different to do, but because it gives you the ability. You never know where you're going to be. You might end up in Hawaii sometime. You might end up in Florida. You might end up here in LA where there's Catalina Island. You might end mm -hmm. up somewhere where you can just take a dive. And when you do that and you get in and you get under there, all of a sudden the ocean concerns for the, all of this stuff really hits you in a different way. And even if it doesn't, it's just flipping beautiful. So this is my, my challenge to you folks. If you've ever thought about getting your PADI certification, I don't remember what the acronym stands for. The D probably stands for dive. It's um, a professional association of dive instructors. So you get to sound a lot cooler than you are when you're certified with PADI. It's, it's, yeah. it's a very like prestigious title. Yeah. You get to carry a little <laughs> booklet around and yeah. yeah. Um, so I recommend doing it. I'll put a, a link in the show notes to a place that will show you where there's a PADI certifier around you. I recommend doing it. Uh, and in it's also fact, a really cool way to travel. Like once you have your dive set, you can go on trips that are specifically for people that are going in a group to go diving. And it's, yeah, it's really cool. It is really cool. So if you get a certification after listening to this podcast, send me a photo of that certification. I'll send you a super nice club hat for free just to be like, yeah, you did it. Cause it's a cool thing. And it's, <laughs> it's a commitment and it costs a little bit of money, takes a little bit of time, totally worth it. Okay. Sorry to get you off track there, but uh, okay. shout out to Patty. That's all. Um, <laughs> 
Okay, so you got your dive. You got this passion for sharks and and what? Just preserving the species. Did you feel like it was that big of a challenge? Like, oh my god, they're all going to go away, or was it just like I really want to find out what there is to find out and where I can help? Well, I actually honestly felt like people did not care about sharks, and I was like, all right, I, I get that, and that's okay because I know people are scared of them, and I know they don't have the best reputation in Australia, and. You know, it's it's whatever. People don't need to care about them. But then when they started to disappear from these areas and I learned more about shark fisheries and that people were eating sharks in Australia and that the trade of shark was still quite significant, that's when I started to be like, okay, I actually probably have to do something. And then slowly I started to realize that it wasn't a case of people not caring. It was a case of people not knowing. So that's why I got into filmmaking because it was an excellent way to raise awareness, not only about the fact that there were crazy people out there like myself that like to dive with sharks and it's safe and it can be done and we have like really cool bonds with them, but also the fact that once people kind of understand the trouble that they're in, it becomes a lot easier to save them. Just to give people an idea here, how many sharks are captured and killed for food or just as quote unquote junk fish every year? So the estimated number, which is a pretty good estimation because it's based on landings and catches and a lot of Mm -hmm. scientific research Mm -hmm. is actually 73 million sharks a year. 73 million sharks per year, folks. So in 14 years, that's a billion sharks. A billion sharks. So I bet if you're listening, you can kind of maybe think, oh, yeah, it's possible that we could, you know, extinct the sharks. There has been a 70 percent decline in shark populations globally over the past 50 years. And researchers are now saying that between 6.4 percent and 7.9 percent of sharks of all species are being killed annually. So it's kind of crazy and it's definitely going to lead to extinctions of certain species if we don't step in and do something about it. 70%, 70% in 50 years, and we're not slowing down as a species. And that goes for all big fish, folks. That, that number holds pretty much for every, I don't know what, what counts as a large fish, but, you know, bigger fish, 70%. Yeah. It's something to consider when you go out for sushi. I'm not trying to be preachy about it, just saying something to put out there in your mind uh, next time you're, you're, you're looking at, at what to order. Um, so 70%, and yet... Sharks are incredibly uh, fertile, aren't they? they? They rebound very quickly when they're given the opportunity. Am I right? Actually, it's kind of the opposite. And this is I'm why totally they're in wrong. trouble. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least you could admit it. I was just trying to be hopeful. This is, this I'm is, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. If only. So the fact that sharks are quite slow growing and they mature and breed more like mammals such as dolphins and whales is probably one of the biggest issues of the way that we fish them. The fisheries that target sharks and catch sharks are a lot like fisheries for tuna and other Mm -hmm. species that populate quite quickly, but sharks cannot keep up with the fishing pressure, which is why we've seen such drastic declines. I mean, a hammerhead shark, for example, has Mm -hmm. one pup every other year, and some sharks take up to 25 years to reach maturity to even be able to have pups. So it is a pretty serious situation for sharks. And the hammerhead is just such a beautiful creature. I, every child, I think, in the world, they get a plastic toy of a hammerhead shark. It's like immediately one of your favorite toys because it is yeah. so improbable looking and so cool looking. And you wouldn't think it was a, a you know, you, you, it's not until you're later that you're told that sharks are sort of, quote unquote, bad, right? To you, if you're young, like my generation growing up watching Flipper, well, actually a little bit before me, but I watched the reruns. You know, the sharks were the ones that were that were attacking Flipper all the time. And yep. uh, so the cultural programming around sharks has been pretty rough. Are you seeing any success with in larger media with a recasting of, of how we look at sharks and storytelling? That's a really interesting question. And, and you're 100 percent right is like kids don't have that fear until it becomes installed in them. And we saw a great example of this with the film Jaws and a whole generation that grew up absolutely terrified of sharks and going into the ocean more than knee deep water. So, I mean, like, you know, a lot of my friends' parents had that similar fear and that's kind of what I hear from people. Oh, no, I'm not diving with sharks. I've seen Jaws. So they do get a really bad rap in the media and it does have an impact. And you know what? Our fear of sharks is also very primal. We're not meant to love 
this animal that can potentially eat us has giant teeth and swims in murky water. Fair it's not point. exactly like, yeah, I, like I'm not, I'm not criticizing anyone for not immediately loving them, you know, like fair enough. You know, if I didn't know what this thing was, I'd probably be scared too. So it's like that double-edged sword of we have the media making them look bad and we already have that fear of them. But I guess what people don't realize is that fear is why there is so much darkness around protecting them and recognizing when they are being exploited. So that's why it's so easy for sharks to be fished in such large numbers. There is still a really, really bad representation of sharks in the media, especially when there are attacks and things that happen, despite the fact that it's statistically such a small number, they still get a really bad rap, which is to be expected. So the only thing that is kind of really changing now is a lot of people are actually going swimming with sharks, meeting sharks. Um, children, of course, are becoming educated about the plight of sharks. And a lot of people are growing up with a bit more respect for them than before. So there, there is a slight shift. And now we have people that are swimming with sharks regularly and, and kind of making them look a little less deadly. So hopefully it does something in the long run. All right. So this is a call out to any filmmakers, animators, storytellers listening right now. I, I want to see you know, a, a Pixar movie, animated movie with sharks as the heroes, you know, even a live action, like a, maybe like a Milo and Otis, but underwater with sharks. Let's, let's get some, some cuddly sharks out there for our kids films. Can we do that folks? Somebody? Please. Might be, might be a hard sell, but I think it can cast be. me as one of the voices. There has to be one Australian shark at least. Yeah, I think so. There, there's some sharks around there in the uh, Great Barrier Reef, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, it's, it's an amazing place. To see so them. They can legally harvest 100,000 sharks a year in the Great Barrier Reef. What are most of those being harvested for? What markets? I'm looking for background info. Yeah, excellent question. So the biggest trade that kind of drives the fishing of sharks is their fins. So shark fin soup, which is made with the dried fin of shark, is an Asian delicacy. It's mainly eaten in countries with Chinese populations and it's a status symbol. So it's something you have at a wedding or a business meeting to show wealth and power, despite the fact it has no taste and it actually has the opposite of health benefits. It's got a lot of toxins in it. So that has really been driving the trade. But in places like Australia and the EU and even the United States, there's also a really big drive for shark meat. So that's also caused quite a few issues. And the fishery in Australia is one of many around the world where they can't just cut the fins off the sharks and throw the sharks back, which is how a lot of shark finning used to happen. So they have to bring the whole animal back. So they're trading both the fins and the meat. It's really terrible. So at least laws changed to kind of make that illegal so they couldn't just fin sharks at sea, but it still has, like it happens a lot illegally. There was something I read that I want to back up to a little bit because it's kind of related, kind of interesting, at least to me. You were homeschooled. Uh, at age yep. 14. Was that your decision? Is that something you're like, hey, mom, dad, I just want to get out in the water. Can we homeschool? So funny, actually. I It wasn't. And, and I was like not trying to leave school. Like I loved school. I was the biggest nerd. I was a teacher's pet. I did great at school. Um, but my dad kind of wanted to dive more and he wanted us to experience the oceans more. Um, so he made this deal with me where he's like, if you finish, like want to finish school now and start homeschooling, Uh, instead of the school fees that I would have spent for you to finish, I'll buy you an underwater camera. So it was kind of hard to say no to that. And that's when my start in filming happened. Uh, Yeah. Underwater cameras aren't cheap. That's a piece of gear. So then did you have to, in Australia, did you have to take like an equivalency test for high school graduation? That kind of thing? So Australia has this really, really cool like, I'm just going to shout out these guys because it was really amazing. So Australia has something in the city that I was closest to. It was called the Brisbane School of Distance Education. So they cater to a lot of students that live in far out places, sometimes in the outback and students that didn't want to go to school for whatever reasons. Mm. And they would send you the materials and you'd be able to complete them in your own time, send them back and you'd have access to your teachers through like phone and email. So it's kind of what's going on now because of COVID, but it's how they kind of had this school program set up back then. So it was really cool. It gave me the freedom to be able to focus on the things I wanted to, which was sharks and filming, but still do a little bit of school. And I actually finished that after year 11. And I was like, I'm not doing year 12. I'm over this. And my dad, who spent his entire life as a university professor, teaching Mm. teachers how to teach math and science, was all for me dropping out of the education system, which was really cool. 
So he's the last person I thought that would be supportive of it, but his desire to like be in the natural world really overtook any desire to have me finish school. So I was pretty lucky to be able to do that. Way to go, dad. That's great. Yeah. The reason why I brought that up is because I would love to help destigmatize the idea of homeschooling or taking what here in the States they call, maybe it's just California, I don't know, uh, the GED, which is the General Educational Development. Um, and I've had some friends that were really into music, really into arts. They weren't cut out for school at that time. And they decided yeah. to get out, take the GED instead. And and they it was almost always a great decision for them. And they could still go to college if they wanted to, right? Um, because some people just have passions or they learn other ways, you know, the, the timeline for when they're going to exit the educational system might be different for them. But we have this huge pressure, at least here in the States, that if you don't graduate from high school, right, with great grades, yeah. you're doomed, you're doomed, right? But what if you want to be yeah. a filmmaker or an athlete or whatever? They're, the general education development, the GED is not the world's worst thing. So there are probably a lot of parents listening going, Ah, you're you're full of shit. That's actually, you know, we don't. That's that's not a good idea. But I'm just Look, saying, it honestly, worked for Madison. Okay, it worked for me, <laughs> and it requires a lot of discipline and a lot of passion and what you want to do. And it's not the easy way out. But honestly, mm -hmm. the school system can be messed up, and it wants us to fit into this little structure of what society wants from us, which doesn't play into the strengths of every single person. You know, like like you said, some people are creative, some people are athletic, but they want you to just do this like standard way of learning and these standard answers and it's rubbish and it doesn't suit everyone. And if I had stayed in school and gone the academic route, I wouldn't have achieved even half of what I've done so far because I would have wasted so much time in uni getting a degree that could tell me that I could go out and get the experience that I already had. So it might work for some people, but it's not the path for everyone. And I think we need to start really like making it normal for kids to drop out of school. And it's kind of normal in Australia. You can go to TAFE, you can drop out of school if you're an apprentice. So you can do a trade when you're 17 instead of finishing school. And mm -hmm. I've always thought that that was really cool. Let's let's reframe it though. So let's not use the words drop out because it has such a, a connotation, you know. Let's just yeah. say um, you know, uh, an alternate path, whatever. Somebody else can work on that. But you y'all get our point. Y'all get our point, what we're trying to say here. Um, quit school, everybody. Stupid. No. Do it. Leave. <laughs> Riot. <laughs> so People get upset with you sometimes. They do. Um, oh, when yeah. you call them out. I saw an Instagram uh, photo that you posted with, this is nasty. It's super Godfather style. There's a shark head on a car. Yep. What happened there? And are you often faced with these levels of anger? Um, so these are actually my friends in Australia. But yes, I've been faced with similar things. I've had my tires cut and been in situations where shark heads have been left on things of ours. Um, this is pretty standard practice. Um, the fishing community, like I want to say commercial and recreational, mm -hmm. is very confident in the things that they do, the laws that they follow, the lack of impact they have on shark populations. Yet somehow whenever we bring things up, it gets a massive reaction, which I find is really interesting, which I mentioned when I posted that. I mentioned I don't understand why we get this kind of backlash when all we're doing is highlighting the things that they're so proud of. But, yes, and I, I do have this mentality in conservation is if you're comfortable, you're not doing it right. So mm. I think these things are really upsetting and atrocious but i also think that they're an important and significant way to recognize when you are having an impact so you're calling people out for their lifestyle choices and or their careers right and that's where they get really upset say hey i'm guessing who are you to tell me that i shouldn't do this or i can't do this or that i'm a bad person but i think that there's you a level think of so but no so in this case we were calling people out for recreational competition fishing of sharks and mm. also calling people out for using the meat from these sharks which are breeding size female sharks which have like very toxic levels of mercury in the meat which is quite dangerous for the community to consume so mm. there's a lot of reasons to be calling out a recreation that is archaic and is affecting species that should be protected at this point. But sometimes you're right, we are calling out occupations and the oceans are changing, but the limits and the occupations and the mentality towards them aren't. So it has to be done sometimes. And you're always going to get a bit of backlash when you do that. Have you ever converted any of these people, these sort of hard bitten pro shark fishers? Have you ever 
had any of them go, wow, you really kind of made me see the light and I'm going to change my ways to even try? Um, to be honest, I have seen them do it on their own, quite a few of them, because hmm. the thing that people don't realize about fishermen most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, is that they actually care about conservation because they don't want to see what they're fishing disappear either. Mm-hmm. So they usually respond to these sorts of things quite well. Not all the time, but usually. I so, see that a lot in the States too with hunters. Yeah. They tend to be, I wouldn't quite say environmentalists, or maybe they consider themselves so, but definitely naturalists. And they're, yeah. they're usually much more expert with the outdoors than, than anyone else. Totally. And, and they want to see that outdoor preserved. They want to see these species preserved, but it's just this mentality where, yeah, I want to see it preserved, but don't, don't limit my, how many you know ducks I can shoot. Yeah. It's a little conflicted. I get it. I have hunters in my family. We've had these conversations. Like it can be tough to, to do these things and, and feel like you're not part of the problem. Yeah. And I think the important thing is we need to be able to have the conversations, even if neither agree, both sides need to be able to say their part. And it's taken a lot for conservationists to listen to the other sides and vice versa. And if you're listening to this and you don't agree with what Madison is, is her take in terms of like how important it is to, I don't know how, why somebody would disagree, but whatever. If somebody's like, ah, we should, you know, kill all the sharks. I'd love to hear from you, not to fight with you, not to argue with you. I would just love to hear what you thought of this podcast, where you think the sort of weaknesses are. I'm always fascinated to, to learn somebody's position that I, that I truly don't understand. Like I said, not to argue, but just because it fascinates me. Like, how does a human mind arrive at that conclusion? And sometimes the answer is really surprising. While I may end up still disagreeing with the person, I can understand how they arrived at their decision. That's meaningful. At least it is to me. Totally. So let's talk about the fishermen, fisher people. They're the ones that are catching and killing the sharks. Uh, Again, back to Instagram, which is my source for news on everything. (laughs) You posted a photo of a couple of men uh, in a small boat fishing with these words. I'll read your words. My voice isn't as cool, but I'm going to read them because I didn't prep you. So you won't be able to pull this up. Um, <laughs> these men drag the sharks from their boat to the market to fetch a price that will sustain them for the next two weeks until they head back out to sea. When they fish, they sleep on the deck of the boat. They pull in lines with their bare hands and they catch their dinner all while finding time to pray to their God. These are family men. These are ocean men. These are good men. The men paying thousands of dollars to enter a fishing tournament from their million dollar fishing boats, sipping liquor from their Yeti cups, (laughs) Yeti cups, who have the luxury of picking the weather in which they choose to kill sharks for fun are not men. They are products of comfort and boredom with the superiority complex derived from a disconnect with nature. The men in Indonesia have saved my life a couple of times. The others have threatened it. There is no fishing of the animals I love that I could ever support, yet there's a significance in recognizing recreation from survival and the artisanal Indonesian shark fisherman from a monster. Boom. Love that post. All right. It says so much. You're you're not capitulating. You're not saying, hey, I still think you should capture sharks, but you are clearly pointing out that there's a difference in when we have hear the word, you know, fisherman. Uh, that there are different breeds. And that kind of gets us into your work at Project, is it Hugh? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh, got it. All right. Um, Most people don't on the first try, so pat right. on the back yes. right there. Uh, which, seeks, which seeks to improve livelihoods both above and below the water. Tell us about that post and kind of how that you know leads into, into your project. Absolutely. So I work with shark fishermen in Indonesia who I have been fishing with. And I have seen more sharks being killed there, more species of sharks, larger sharks there, more damage being done than I have here at competitions or recreational sport fishing in the USA or in Australia. So there's obviously like a big difference. It's a very devastating trade that's going on over there, but the motives behind it are completely different. So these men, as I say, go to sea for two weeks with the purpose of being able to put their kids through school and put food on the table and fish these sharks so that they're able to make a living and a very small living, I might add. Some of them make Mm -hmm. about 150 Australian dollars for two weeks of that fishing. And that is a very different socioeconomic issue causing shark fishing. Mm -hmm. And to go from that to places where I see people recreationally fishing sharks is the issue. And the other issue is we're dealing with migratory species that 
cross oceans. So we see our recreation affecting the livelihoods of people in these more developing nations. And it's just a big difference for me. It's always such a big difference. I don't think there's a whole lot of conservationists out there that see the difference between shark fishing. I know they just see shark fishing and it's like all bad and mm-hmm. it must all be stopped. But Project Here, we were able to kind of look at the bigger picture and realize that their motives for fishing came from a need for survival. So what we do now is we employ those shark fishermen in tourism. We use the same boats that they would otherwise be taking fishing to take tourists surfing and snorkeling and doing whatever they want. And the fishermen are able to make better money, go home at the end of the night, not potentially risk uh, losing their licenses for getting protected species or fishing in illegal waters, but just have a much better opportunity to make money that in hand also save sharks. So I have a lot of respect for those fishermen and the fact that they're willing to work with me and the fact that they fish for those reasons as opposed to people who do it for recreation. When did you start working with these fishermen? And, and do you remember the first conversation you had, like your, your first test? Like I, we've never presented this to anybody before, but you know, when you first approached fishermen on this? Absolutely. So when I first approached the fishermen, it wasn't the first time I went to the market where they bring in their catch. I've been there a couple of times to film. And the thing that always bothered me is I'd always go and film what was going on and then just leave. And it started to feel a little bit like, like, I don't know, a little bit dishonest because I wasn't doing anything to help or change anything. I was just kind of using it as a way to document what was going on. So I had this random idea of being like, okay, maybe there's an opportunity to stop what they're doing with tourism. And I got the idea by fishermen in Mexico that had refitted their boats from shark fishing boats to whale watching boats and were now making more money. So I was like, maybe we could do the same in Indonesia. And I do remember the very first conversation, and this is only in like 2017, so it's not an old project. Right. And the first conversation, the fisherman was very hesitant. He was sitting on the top of his boat. I approached him. You know, I was a 22 at the time, 22-year-old Australian foreigner woman in this shark fishing Muslim community that tourists don't go to stick out like a sore thumb. And I went up to this fisherman and this is the funniest part is I told him I was a pro surfer, you know, cause like, why not? If you're going to make up an identity, have fun with it. Yeah. I, like, I want to see if there's any waves around here. We can surf. Can I hire your boat for the next few days? So that's what we did. He was very hesitant. He didn't know why we were filming the catch. I watched them that day take about 80 sharks off the two boats that they had in there. And then for the next week, we actually hired the boat and tested out the possibility of having tourists on there. And then that kind of turned into a long friendship. After about a month or so, I came clean about who I was and what I was doing and that sharks were my interest. And it didn't change anything. And that very shark fisherman that I spoke to on that day now Mm -hmm. has a two-year-old daughter named after me. No way. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. What what's what's the fisherman's name? His name is Odie. Odie. Odie, we Odie. salute you. Yeah, for, for being open He's and serving that. So Odie is on board, no pun. And uh <laughs> now does Odie then go to other people say, Hey, yeah, you know, I mean this I'm making more money. You should check this out. And they're starting to come to you, or how what was the growth from there in general? Well, it's pretty easy because Odie has 10 brothers. So um, Odie's family actually it was very fortuitous that he happened to be there on the day because his family has the boats that do the most damage. So I was able to work mm. with two of his other brothers who also have boats. And he has, this is really interesting, but he has one brother that is the person that actually buys shark fins. So he really doesn't like me. And he's tried to get Odie and the rest of the brothers to never work with me. And they've basically been like, no, we're going to work with her. So I feel like it's like sometimes an episode of Jerry Springer, Indonesian style. And I've just come in and like started all this family drama, but it's pretty cool. So yeah. Wow. That is really interesting. And there's no language barrier there between you guys? A little bit. Um, Odie, he speaks good English. He speaks five languages. He's a very intelligent fisherman. He was actually studying languages at university um, before his father died and he was forced to return to fishing. And I do my best to learn Indonesian, but amazingly enough, the communities there have their own kind of languages. So the fishing community, the shark fishing community of about 3,000 people on this tiny island have a unique language. So everything I learned just went out the window and now I'm kind of trying to relearn it all over again. Wow. So you have one brother, you're, you're hurting his income, you're converting the rest of the family. Yeah. You better be careful. (laughs) (laughs) So that's great. So you have, and then like you said, it's a tiny Island. So 
how do you, are you part of it all trying to drive tourism then? I mean, how do you make sure that people are, are renting the boats? So before COVID, it was a kind of situation where I was just running trips and people were booking on my trips and we started to investigate other ways to be able to employ the boats, like waste management, collecting trash and doing mm. things and setting them up with licenses so they could take tourists out without our presence being there, which is the ultimate goal. But then okay. COVID hit and it's been quite difficult to get back and have operations running since then, but it has given us time to rethink everything. That's what Project Q is doing. You're working on this family of 10 siblings, yeah. <laughs> no, but you're looking to expand beyond that. So the link to Project Q, if you want to donate to, to what Madison and her team are doing is in the show notes, get involved. Besides financial giving, can you think of any sort of expertise or talent that you're looking for that people can donate? That's such a good question. Um, we really do always need help with admin, applying for grants, all sorts of things, things like that, you know, things that I'm not good at, like business, um, social media, things that that we struggle with are things that most businesses are quite good at. So those kinds of talents are really handy. Uh, we can't unfortunately take on volunteers right now, but one day we hope to. And the biggest thing I would encourage people to do once the world kind of goes back to somewhat normality is to join a trip. You don't need to have any experience, but you can come to Indonesia and be on these boats with us and meet the fishermen yourself and contribute to the solution. I think that's a great idea. Hey, Sister Kelly and family living in Perth, it's kind of a trek for you, but it's not as far for you than it is for me. So, you know, join one of these trips. All right. I know, yeah, I know you close. listen. I know you listen to uh, this podcast, Kelly. All right. So I'm throwing <laughs> the challenge out to you, big sister. Um <laughs> You have a lot of family in Perth. They're, they're amazing. That's awesome. I have a question. People that are interested, they've been listening to this, like, ah, you know, this is cool. Can you think of any documentaries, top of your head, um, works that you've done, but others that people should watch that really lay out the story of our oceans, of sharks, books, any media that, that you're like, yeah, this is a great starting point. Absolutely. Um, I'd say one of the biggest ones is Shark Water. People can watch a documentary called Shark Water and that'll help them kind of see the initial kind of craze that began the shark conservation movement. And it's a really good and informative documentary. There's a one that I'm in called Blue, and Blue is a really interesting insight to a lot of issues in our ocean. Um, let's see, some other cool ones. Hmm. End of the Line is a really good documentary. Um, end, of, end of the Line? End of the Line, yeah. It's a very interesting documentary on, on fishing practices. And there's a really cool one that came out not too long ago called Playing With Sharks about um, an Australian woman who really pioneered some of the shark conservation movement and diving in Australia. So those are all really cool documentaries. And then you just get into a rabbit hole and find heaps more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just some starting points. Once, once, you, once you get going, hopefully you'll keep going. Have you ever thought about how humanity and the planet would differ if, if like you, we all grew up in the water? you know, in the oceans? Oh, my goodness. I think that having that connection to the oceans is very essential and fundamental in people wanting to protect it, for sure. But I also think that seeing the drastic changes people have made with this industrial fishing and the way that we treat the oceans is also like a big driving force for why people like myself do what we do. It's something that we've visually seen an impact of. So it wouldn't so much even be about people being in the ocean, growing up in the ocean and falling in love with it, but them also just being able to visually witness it. I mean, we, we would notice if somebody came and killed all our pets, you know, and that's how it feels for people that spent their whole life diving with sharks that no longer can. Yeah, that's why I was wondering if you feel, because you're so immersed in the oceans, the environment, the politics of the oceans, uh, do you pay as much, do you think, do you feel like you pay as much attention to more terrestrial concerns? You know, do you think, I mean, right now, right now we have a terrible war, for example, in Ukraine, which I know you're aware of, and I know you probably think completely sucks because war always sucks, but mm -hmm. does, do you ever think that feels almost trivial compared to saving the literal life of our, our planet's lungs and heart? Personally, it's definitely a difficult balance. It's yeah. definitely something that's like... I mean, you, you see people worry about things that are happening right now and a lot of us who are involved in environmental causes are worried about things that are going to happen in 10 years because we're not doing anything right now. 
which I feel yeah. is pretty like a pretty natural response to things. Um, yeah. And yeah, definitely people that are more involved in environmental causes have just like a broader general anxiety about the environment as opposed to everything else going on. But it's definitely on the radar. All these things are, I guess, connected to the, the biggest issue, which is how humans are treating the world and each other. It's definitely interwoven. You know, all of these crises are, are connected and resource scarcity drives well, and population, obviously, you know, population is a fundamental driver of gobbling resources. Resource scarcity then uh, creates competition for resources. And then we suddenly have people, you know, uh, mining the oceans uh, for crazy rare earth metals, right? And, and, and trying to obviously eat everything that's in the, what they consider the ocean refrigerator, right? Um, so they are, they are all connected. Energy connects to food, connects to water, connects to, uh, lack of fresh water creates what, uh, offshore desal plants that then pour tons of salt into the ocean and kill the ocean. I, you know, it's, everything is completely connected, but yeah, what you said before, like the struggle to find that balance, I'm interested in that with anybody that I talk with that is, in the space of um, kind of fighting for the planet, for, for life on earth, how we find that balance without getting depressed, without having the anxiety yeah. overwhelm us. I'm sure you have that conversation with your peers. Do you have any tips? Such a good question. It is definitely, definitely something that everybody involved in that space. And I think in general in life these days, because of everything that's going on is experiencing maybe for the first time people are. The only thing I can say is it's really hard work to be part of the solution, but every now and then when it pays off and you're actually making a difference, that's when you get a little win. That's when you feel better. So the only way to tackle this problem is to be part of the solution. And that'll give you like a little bit of confidence and relief and power and, and just that little bit of victory that you need to keep going. So where are we seeing some wins right now in, in the oceans? Where are we seeing a little bit of progress? I know we've got a lot of work to do, and but just where are some of those little positive things? I mean, there are, there are right now, for example, like I was just in Ecuador filming bycatch of sharks and there are laws coming in that are going to protect certain species. That's a little win. That's a good win. Um, there are things that were unable to happen, like big fishing competitions uh, because of COVID. That's a little win. Every time I'm able to stop a boat from fishing for a month in Indonesia, that's a little win. These are the things that we just have to keep doing and keep thinking and keep dreaming about. And trust that there are many thousands of other people out there that are also creating little wins. That can be one of the hard things in the activist communities. You just, you, it's hard to see progress on the thing that you're doing. And you just have to have blind faith that, that humanity, that there's a lot of people out there also doing great work, right? That yeah. and for me, that was yeah. one of my big struggles when I was, when I was involved for years in, in similar work is that I had to just trust that other people were doing good work. And I had a hard time with that. I really did. I got, I got pretty burned out. Yeah. yeah. What would your best advice be for when people do get burned out? Um, probably just recreational drug use, just like lots of it, <laughs> lots of recreational drug use. Um, they had to burning man, just take two weeks off. No, um, it is, it's to, it's to remember it's, I'm kidding folk. It's to really just practice having faith that other people are working really hard too. Uh, and maybe try to spend a little bit of your activist time connecting with other activists. Uh, and they don't have to be in your field, right? Just other people doing great work because you can commiserate, you can share wins, and, and you can have somebody around you that understands the losses and understands uh-huh. how much how much it hurts at, at a soul level to see some of these things. So find your community, find the people close to you that that get it, even if it's not exactly the same thing. Maybe they're into Siberian tigers and you're thinking, well, what difference do the tigers make if you're not working on population because the population pressure is eventually going to extinct everything? It's like, yeah, but people working on conserving a species are buying that species time while the people over here working on population pressures and educating women in the poorest parts of our world so the population numbers drop rapidly are doing their work. So just trusting that network, building the network and getting to know it like personally, not just by email, like, you know, hanging out, 
in the real world and getting to know these people, that will save your soul uh, and fire you up to keep doing work. It's what I'm doing with the podcast. It's why you and I are talking right now. Mm-hmm. Um, is it 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 keeps me connected to the people that are doing the work, you know, uh, and who are appreciated for doing it. And it's, it's hard to feel like you're appreciated. It's hard to feel like you're being successful. Uh, you just got to know that you are. That's all. That's what I would say. Long answer. I always no, like, have long answers. That's, that's a good answer. And there's no one right, right answer for everything. So it's going to take a lot of people doing the things that they're good at to make a difference. And, you know, people used to say to me, like, oh, you're actually not going to be able to like make a huge impact and blah, blah, blah. Or you're not going to be able to stop the trade. And it's like, you know, that that's fine. We're not trying to. We're just making sure that we don't go down without a fight. And that is the most important thing at the end of the day. Whether and, and that's why when people ask me like, oh, what are your goals? I really don't like that question because I never have any. I don't think that that's a fair pressure to be putting on ourselves. It's not about having goals, right? It's just about doing as much as we can, however we can, in the way that we can to make a difference. Amen to that. Amen to that. And, and, and feeling like you are not uh, taking from this earth. I guess as humans, I guess we ultimately, we all sort of are at the end, but we try to contribute. We want to feel like we are working towards something better. And for, for the people around us, you know, whether we have kids or their kids in our lives, we want to be able to uh, have them look at us and be proud because I'm telling you, I am telling you the generation coming up, uh, they're not going to look back at the older generations with a lot of grace. They're not going to look back and say, gosh, thank you for creating this amazing, you know, <laughs> technologically wonderful world. They're going to be saying, you mothers were so greedy and terrible and you wrecked everything. Literally. You know, they are. Gonna, you stuck us with the biggest bill in history. You know, screw you. I, I'm not impressed by you. <laughs> Greatest generation, generation X, whatever. No, no, uh-uh. you guys knew better. You knew better and you did this anyway. I mean, I don't mean to be dark, but that is what the future generations are going to look back and, and be ashamed. I'm telling you. 100%. So, so, 100%. But they don't have to be. We're not dead yet. I'm not dead yet. So there's still a lot of work to be done. All right. Not to get preachy, but it happens, Madison. It happens. I get fired up. Um, so we have each guest. Uh, oh, no. Before I get there, scratch that. You're doing documentary work. We didn't talk about that at all. When you listen to these documentaries, none of your projects were on there. Well, yeah, I, uh, I'm not too good at self-promotion. My <laughs> That's why you're on the podcast. I guess I should have led you better. That's why I'm circling back. The best thing that people can do to check out my work yeah. is um, something like going on to Project Hughes YouTube channel, my Instagram, or my Vimeo, and watching the short films that I've made there because mm-hmm. those are things that I have control over. The things that I've done within the media, I don't have a lot of control over, but there's still some pretty good ones. The first documentary I ever did, I was like 19 years old and it's called Shark Girl, which which is why I can never get away from that name as much as I try. So that was a cool documentary because I was just a kid and that really takes you through like the journey of fighting against shark fisheries in Australia. And then one of them was mine, another one that I'm in, which is Blue. And then Sharkwater has a sequel called Sharkwater Extinction. I'm in that too. And then there's some other like little things here and there, smaller productions that you can watch that are pretty interesting. Okay, fair enough. That, that's, that's all I wanted to hear. And then I can put those links in there. So that was your moment of self-promotion. I think you did pretty well. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, and, and I'm awesome. You, you covered the uh, look, folks, when the media covers me, I can't edit it. They only get to present me in a certain way. So I'm not going to vouch yeah. for it, you know, so. And all yeah. I'm going to say is watch this space because more are coming, hopefully. Yes. All right. That's it. That's perfect. Watch this space. I'm awesome. You guys heard that, right? Okay. That's, that's it. Uh, <laughs> So we do the segment of the podcast as we wrap it up uh, where the guest gets to issue a challenge. It's the be nice challenge to the listeners, to the members of the super nice club, uh, something they can do, something they can uh, do to make their world, the world a little bit nicer. It can be a small action, a big action, just something. Got something? Got a challenge? I, I like these. People ask me these every now and then. I really like these. So my challenge is actually for people to go onto my website and there's a section. So not just my Project Here website, but there is a link to it on there. But my website called The Hooper Collective and there's a section on how you, I'll send you the link and it's how you can help 
sharks. And the reason that it's so cool is because it's going to tell you things that you may never even have known in the past that have shark products in them. Things Mm. from cosmetics to pet food. Yes, it's very, it's like very interesting. So my challenge would be for people to spend like a solid week seeking out, seeing if they can just go to their local place and find one of these products. And then of course, not buying it. But it's just interesting for people to have that awareness about just how common they are. Wow, that's a great challenge. And then maybe going to, I bet you, I bet you the people who are, let's say you go to a, your supermarket or your Amazon store, formerly Whole Foods, and you find a shark product, I bet you the buyers there don't know. It, it wouldn't hurt to let them know like, hey, not trying to be a jerk, but you know, this has shark in it. Can we like maybe yeah. not have that here? Um I like it. I like the challenge. Okay. So that link will also be in the show notes or just go to uh, projecthu.com, H-I-U, by the way, Mm -hmm. Uh, projecthiu.com and all of this stuff will be in there. Okay. So last but not least, no, last and least, uh, you get to be the host for a second. Uh, You get to ask me a question, any question, just fire away. I'll do my best to answer. Have you ever been in the water with a shark? I have um, in uh, Belize, off the coast of Belize. Tell me about it. Well, I can tell you, I don't remember the, the species, um, but it was, uh, it's when I got certified uh, down in Belize and it was one of the dives and the, you know, it was sort of a, that was the, the thing, right? You're going to go out and swim with um, sharks and what else were there? Um, manta rays i want to say yeah yeah uh so sharks and manta rays and yeah it was great i loved it i mean i loved diving i got i didn't know what i would think of it when i went to get certified and i went in and i was just like this is the calmest thing in the world this is the most grounding thing i've ever done uh it's just quiet you hear your breathing it's that giant space uh the sharks were, were beautiful you know um big strong creatures but nothing about it felt threatening. I think humans, we, we kind of I know when things are threatening by shape and color and size and body language. Um, none of that was exhibited when we were diving. So I, I quite enjoyed it. That's awesome. And would you, would you do it again with a bigger, more potentially dangerous type of shark? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, I would. Not for the thrill-seeking element. I'm not one of those guys that's like, I want to get in a cage and like wave some blood yeah. in front of uh, great whites or anything like that. <laughs> but I, here's the thing. If you can be near a beautiful creature on this planet, yeah, uh, the answer should be yes. As long as you're not impinging on their uh, environment, right? Yeah. Um, you're not stepping on the reef and you know, you're not part of a, a situation that is like, I mean, that is where I struggle sometimes. These boats, we're putting oil in the water. Like I, I'm yeah. always calling myself out for all these little things. But yeah, if you can do it in a way that is just watching, not touching, not screwing with it, um, I, I'm, I'm any species. Yeah. Or, or tree, you know, or mountain or whatever. Just the things that make you feel uh, in awe and proud mm-hmm. to be part of this universe. And you know it when you feel it. You're like, wow, I'm so glad to be part of this whole thing. And there's a beautiful example of this whole thing. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's what I love the most about sharks is that there's not a whole lot of situations or animals on the planet these days that can humble us. Mm-hmm. And you really can't feel your true power until you've been humbled. And sharks are really good for that. So, yeah. yeah. A lot of things are humbling. Even small little creatures can be humbling if you know what they can do, what they're capable of. But being in the water, folks, where it's not necessarily natively hospitable to you, that knocks you down a few pegs right there. And then the shark that's like, I own this space. It's, yeah, you should all do it. It's it's not affordable for a lot of folks to do, especially if you're living in Kansas City or something. But if you have the opportunity, take it. Absolutely. Cool. I love All it. Right. Okay. That's my yeah. question for you. Great. I appreciate the question. I am now I'm fired up. I'm going to go find out where, uh, well, just, I can head up to the North coast. There's a lot of, there's a lot <laughs> of sharks off, uh, up by San Francisco. It's but, also uh, like, you know, people don't have to get in the water with sharks to be advocates for sharks and to love yeah. sharks. My favorite people are the landlocked Americans that are so heavily involved in shark conservation that are always like sending me stuff and supporting stuff. I love these people. 
I'm like, go you. You don't even get to enjoy the presence of a shark and you're still at home like fighting for them. Like that stuff, that is, that makes me happy. So that is definitely, selfless. yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. So yes to those people. That's great. Well, I've really appreciated talking with you today and hello to Florida from the Super Nice Club, Super Nice Club Florida folks. Hi, glad you're here. And welcome to the Super Nice Club, Madison Stewart. Really glad to have you. Thank you. Been nice talking to you. So there you have it. A super nice conversation with super nice Madison Stewart. You've got a big list of movies to watch, documentaries. All the links are in the show notes. We just need, I don't know, 10 million more people like Madison protecting, defending, and getting the word out about the species and the things that we need to be paying attention to, right? Because we're kind of gobbling up our globe and not really paying attention. It's kind of weird, right? Uh, anyway, love it. Love her. Love you for listening to this. And in two weeks, we will have another podcast episode as we make our way toward number 100. Yeah. And whoever you are, wherever you are, I hope you're doing well. Do your best, please, to stay nice. Ain't always easy, is it? Stone just wanna 
Let's go. 